Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, ever wonder what iconic businesses were born in Brooklyn? We'll have someone here to tell us. A Brick Web comedy series premieres at Tribeca, and the circus is in the house, the Universe Soul Circus. Hi, welcome to the show. I'm Ross Tuttle. Ashley is still out with the flu, but the show must go on. That's what they say at the circus, right? Well, it's fitting because we're going to speak with the ringmaster of the Universe Soul Circus, which touched down in Brooklyn for this week and next. Also, Brick TV's web series, Dinette, is premiering at the Tribeca Film Festival on Thursday. We'll talk to its creator. And a look back at Brooklyn businesses through the ages. The big, for example, Domino Sugar, and to the small, the mom and pops. But first, a news item that keeps, uh, shall I say, bubbling up. Let me take the long way there. A couple of months ago, we talked about the Ridgewood Reservoir, an abundant water source that helped transform Brooklyn, in part because it allowed for the proliferation of flush toilets in the 1890s. Ever since, Brooklynites didn't have to concern themselves much with the whereabouts of their poop. The same can't be said, however, for a small town of Parrish, Alabama, population 982. You see, they have a rail line that runs through town, and it's along this line that New York City ships a portion of its biosolids, in other words, their poo, once it's been treated, because we don't have enough space to manage it here. Mind you, we produce about 1,200 tons a day. We used to ship it out to sea, but we had to stop doing that back in 1988. So we send it to places like Alabama and their landfills, but of course, they don't like it much. So the town where the poop was transferred from the trains to trucks got an injunction, stranding the poop on the trains in Parrish, about 10 million pounds of poo since January. What does that do to a community? Well, we have Heather Hall, the mayor of Parrish, on the phone to tell us. Heather Hall, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell me about this. I mean, this has been in the news a little bit here recently. We heard about the injunction, and then we weren't aware of the trains being stalled right outside or in your town for the past, what, four months? Two months, since um, the beginning of February. Since the beginning of February. What's that been like for the community? Well, uh, we've had some pretty bad days here. Uh, Thankfully, it's been pretty cold. We've had a pretty cold winter and a spring here. Um, but the heat, um, when the heat comes on, it, it makes everything miserable. Um, we have a, our town is about two square miles. Wow. And so when you have 10 million pounds of this material sitting in a town mm-hmm. our size, it, it, it just permeates the whole town, oh especially at night, maybe about six, seven o'clock at night, uh, maybe having to do with atmospheric conditions, but I don't know, but it, it um, will, you know, encompass the whole entire town. Wow. And so I, I understand that uh, a lot of uh, the folks in town have had to change their behavior, not going out as much, canceling baseball games, things like that. Well, yeah, you can't go outside at all. So you can't you can't sit on your front porch. You can't uh, barbecue. You know, we love our barbecue down here. Um, um, the Our park and rec is located right next to the rail yard. Um, and uh, we've had to uh, uh, reschedule a couple games because it did get very warm. Um, last last week, and uh, it did create some problems. So we've had to reschedule a couple games, but that's all over with now. Uh-huh. Well, so all over with because I understand the last train or the last car is being moved out? Well, the last container has mm-hmm. been moved out. Um, when you were talking about how the trucks would uh, remove the containers from the rail cars and then it would be trucked to the landfill, that's what they were doing here to get rid of this material. And when you have that many um, containers we had um 252 of them 
it takes a while to transport them all, but the last one last left yesterday. Wow, well, I'm so glad to hear that for your sake. Um, I wonder if you have any message um, for the city government, the state government here, the people in New York, um, about this practice. Well, you know, and I've been asked several times, do I harbor any ill will against New York City or the people? And no, of course not. But I would say that it seems like it's a very fragile system that y'all are working with there. And if, if something as small as that, um, that injunction can cause a nightmare for the people down here, it seems to me that something needs to be fixed with that system that is being used. Um, there are other ways to handle this material. Of course, we have a small town, so I wouldn't be able to be the one that you would speak to about it. But I do know that, like Washington, D.C., they burn theirs and use theirs to create energy, um, electricity. So it seems to me that with as much as y'all produce, um, because there are so many people there, that there, there is a way that may be beneficial that could be done. Right. Well, well, Heather Hall, uh, mayor of, of Parrish, Alabama, we hope that uh, the people in positions of power to make decisions like these are listening to this show so they can maybe think about some alternatives so a situation like this doesn't happen again. Uh, we really appreciate you uh, being on the show and, and sharing a little bit about your experience uh, with us. Thank you. Y'all have a wonderful day. Okay. Thanks a lot. Uh, bye-bye. And we'll be back in a moment with our first guest. Brooklyn's reputation for inventiveness has deep roots. Today we have artisanal chocolate, gourmet pickles, microbrew. But did you know that Brillo pads were born in Brooklyn? Same with bazooka gum. As the borough continues to remake itself by way of population growth and upheaval, as well as physically with explosion of high-rises and waterfront development, this spirit of innovation and creation has stayed constant. And this spirit is celebrated at a current exhibition of the Brooklyn Historical Society. It's called The Business of Brooklyn, and we have with us its curator, Thomas Mellons, to tell us about this rich history. Welcome to 112BK. Thank you so much. So tell us briefly about the exhibition. What's it about? The exhibit has a huge theme, which is simply the business of Brooklyn, the history of uh, business and commercial development here, Mm -hmm. uh, starting when Brooklyn is an independent city and then after consolidation when it becomes a borough. Mm -hmm. There was a uh, relatively small gallery at the uh, Brooklyn Historical Society, and so I had the challenge, how do I... Uh, describe this enormous subject in a, a relatively confined space. Uh-huh. And I decided uh, the exhibition is in conjunction with the 100th anniversary of the Brooklyn Chamber of Commerce, which has played a very uh, pivotal role in uh, stimulating good uh, business conditions here. And I decided that I would uh, organize this thematically uh, rather than strictly chronologically. And it starts with a look at the chamber and other organizations. uh, And then it focuses on big business. Many people don't know that uh, Brooklyn was the center of major industries, Mm -hmm. uh, everything from Astral Oil, uh, which is founded by Charles Pratt and becomes part of Standard Oil, uh, to uh, Domino Sugar. Is there an oil refinery up near Greenpoint? Was Uh, that There was indeed. Uh And there were many many breweries. I think at, at the uh, height of uh, the, the industry, there were, I think, 45 breweries within 12 blocks in Williamsburg. Wow. Um, so by it's 19- no coincidence there are a lot of breweries now that have come back? Or, Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, well, part, part of what's explored in the 
uh, exhibit is the evolution of uh, business and the cycles that it goes through. So there's a, a, a moment when it's about big industry. Then there's deindustrialization uh, in the post-war era. And now we're seeing a return of some industry, not at the same uh, scale. But as you say, now they're microbreweries where there once was Peels and Schaefer's and Rheingold. And, wow. uh, and Peels was brewed here. Yeah, okay. absolutely. And, and then another component, almost the kind of flip side of big industry, are the mom-and-pop stores which have been uh, brilliantly uh, documented by uh, James and Carla Murray, uh, who uh, photographed storefronts. Mm -hmm. And they're beautiful uh, photographs, but they also tell an important story about uh, not only small-scale commerce and the opportunity uh, to uh, start a business here and how important entrepreneurship has been, but also gentrification and the, uh, the loss of these stores. And so... Because they haven't really been well-preserved. A lot of these mom-and-pop stores have gone by the wayside. Well, very often, yes, yeah. they're forced out. And it's one of these sort of typical New York ironies where the neighborhood so-called improves, but many of the things right. that, that uh, service the neighborhood then get forced out. Uh -huh. um, and so there's always a, a tension, as there, as there is in every aspect of New York life. Sure. You know? and, uh, and then I looked at... Um, what I describe as the democratization of urban pleasures and how in the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, uh, the Industrial Revolution has given people more leisure time than they ever had before, and so how do they spend it, and how do they spend their money? And part of what happens is that uh, department stores spring up largely at American innovation. They're drawing on a, a French tradition, but hmm. it's really a, 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 a typically American thing. So the French gave us the department store. They did. But the, the Americans sort of ran with it, uh -huh. and, and it becomes it takes on almost a civic dimension, as mm -hmm. do restaurants, as do racetracks, as do uh, the, the, the beaches of Brooklyn, uh -huh. and all of that is part of the business of Brooklyn. Right. This can be looked through looked at through a business lens. Absolutely. Um, so it's it's a lot. You're it's tackling a lot. a lot. I mean, we're talking about gentrification. We're talking about different businesses, different scales of business, um, different periods. Um, how did you come to curate this? Uh, I have written about and curated exhibitions about New York for decades. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, my roots are in architectural history and, and in the built environment. But I have broadened uh, and I've curated exhibitions on social and um, economic and political history uh, dimensions of New York. Everything from uh, recently I did something on the, the history of affordable housing in New York, mm -hmm. New Yorkers' involvement in the Spanish Civil War, sort of far-ranging. Okay. And so the opportunity to talk about the economic underp uh, underpinnings of the city, I mean, very often people, uh, th their principal association with New York is making a buck. Mm -hmm. And in a certain way, that has obscured us from, I think, uh, or, or, or has made it harder to really focus on other aspects of New York. For example, the physical beauty right. has been uh, often overlooked because everybody thinks New York is about uh, the bottom line. Mm -hmm. But in this case, this is an exhibit about, uh, to, to a large extent, the bottom line. And for many years, New York, uh, Brooklyn was described as the borough of uh, homes and churches. So right. at the most basic level, I think one of the things that I want people to learn about this, uh, from this exhibit, about Brooklyn, is that business has been 
at its at the heart of its soul for a long time as well. Well, it's interesting you talk about um, the borough of homes and churches, um, and I think people of a certain generation, or maybe most people, view Brooklyn's history as being sort of this place where people lived when they worked in Manhattan, and then only recently has there been this development of, of commerce. But what you're talking about is a rich history of that, a rich industrial history as well, which I guess we can see in some of the waterfront districts in Red Hook and also um, in the Navy Yard and, and further north up to Greenpoint. Um, but this has been part of its DNA. Absolutely. And, and in fact, uh, one of the things that I think the exhibit can help do is, is to realize that Brooklyn was not simply a satellite of Manhattan, right. that it was an independent city and that it, its business roots uh, reflect that. Interestingly, uh, a lot of the businesses, the breweries, um, uh, other um, uh, heavy industry, actually started in Manhattan mm-hmm. and then uh, came to Brooklyn because of many of the same reasons that people uh, start businesses in Brooklyn now, which is to say the space, at least up until recently, it's cool. no. it, well, it's cool, <laughs> but also it was a little bit more affordable right. for a large space. Um, it was easily accessible by public transportation, uh, all of those things. Yeah. Um, and so I wonder, in, in putting together the exhibition, I wonder, was there anything that surprised you or, or anything that you discovered? You're like, wow, this is really kind of a great little, a little nugget. Uh, two things come to mind, one um, positive and one about um, conflict. And I thought that the, the exhibit certainly celebrates uh, Brooklyn and business in Brooklyn, but I thought it was important to uh, tell people that not everything uh, is easy and there's been conflict as well. So it was fascinating to me to come across documentation of a uh, series of protests in 1963 uh, focused on Ebinger's uh, bakeries. Mm. Um, Ebinger's was synonymous with Brooklyn for lots of people. People will remember the chocolate cake and the lemon meringue pie and their grandmother always bringing something from Ebinger's whenever she visited and all of those things. What I think some people are less aware of is that Ebinger's did pursue racially discriminatory um, mm. Uh, hiring policies, particularly in terms of salespeople. And uh, the Brooklyn chapter of CORE, the Congress on Racial Equality, Hmm. uh, organized protests. Um, They were successful in the sense that uh, Ebinger did change, uh, Ebinger's did change its hiring policy and Hmm. did hire some African Americans. They, however, retained uh, a regulation that you had to live within a certain distance of the store or uh, factory that you worked at, so there still was a way was around. A way, kind of loophole there. And then in the 1970s, the business closed. Uh-huh. Um, but what was particularly interesting to me, in addition to finding flyers uh, and uh, letters from CORE, uh-huh. uh, was an article in Ebony Magazine. So it, it received national attention. Hmm. And the title of the article was was uh, something very close to uh, protest northern style. Wow. And so that was interesting to me. So I'm going to have to cut you off there, and we'll have to leave the other one for people to go to the exhibition to find out you know, their own little nuggets because we're out of time, unfortunately. But just the details uh, where they can see the exhibition. It's Brooklyn Historical Society. Yes. Right? It, um, it, on Pierpont Street. Okay. Um, and it is there through the end of this calendar year. Okay, great. So and if people want to go to the website, which I think, well, we'll maybe put it up on the... I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. I don't know if you have it. Uh, okay. Well, we'll send people to the Brooklyn Historical Society see this uh, business of Brooklyn. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure.
Tribeca Film Festival is upon us, and we're excited to announce that Brick TV has two new series premiering in the program, including Dinette, a web series with an ensemble cast of female and gender nonconforming friends who riff on themes like machismo and patriarchy. I would go on, but my description most certainly won't do it justice, so we invited its creator to tell us a bit more about the show and the inspiration behind it. Shana Feinberg, welcome to 112BK. Thank you. So tell me about Dinette. I gave that brief description there. I'm sure there's a little more that you can provide. Um, well, let's see. Uh, I grew up watching all these these movies with all these men hanging out, and um, I would always identify with the men. And so I had it in my brain to do something where I could see a bunch of women and gender nonconforming people hang out in that way, mm -hmm. because that feels more realistic to me. Right. Um, and so I finally got the opportunity working with Brick to do that. Cool. So like hanging out, talking about things large and small, important and kind yeah. of mundane. And I love. I, I watched the um, the first. I think the first episode. I don't want to give too much away, but I love that the first conversation is kind of set while a woman is sort of stuck in in her in her jacket, and yeah. her friends are very close to her face, and they're talking about things while also trying to kind of uh, free her. It's, yeah. It's, I, I wanted to um, show that like. The friends were helping each other, mm -hmm. but also I just really wanted to see women um, hanging out in a way that felt kind of like casual. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like so often I watch movies and TV shows where the women are like half naked or um, I don't know. They just don't feel it doesn't feel mm -hmm. realistic to me. And right. so to have like a woman in like several jackets stuck because her zipper is <laughs> caught, you know, um, and she's like slouching down. I don't know. It just felt more right. realistic. And sometimes you watch things and you can really, you really have a sense for the production because of maybe it's sloppy and it feels like you, you notice like when things are happening in it that you shouldn't be noticing necessarily. But with this it feels you don't notice that very much and I'm, I'm sure it's a challenge filming a series like this in Brooklyn. Can you talk about the challenges? Oh yeah, it was, I mean, we were so lucky to get funding from Brick, but it was still a really, really, really low budget thing and it was 75 pages to shoot in seven days. Wow. So um, it was a lot to do. Seven and days for how many how many episodes? It's six episodes. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's, it was a lot. Like we would have one day, that day we actually had 19 pages for the first day. Okay. Um, so that was a lot um, to shoot in such a short period of time. Mm. But um, I, we were talking before the cameras started rolling and I told you I went to Brooklyn Tech and um, when I was in my junior year there I got to do a play, I got to direct a play and my teacher gave me a 97 and said that my play was as tight as a drum. So I do, I, I feel like I've taken that forward with me and my directing is um, like when we get into the editing room I really like to try to like tighten, 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 tighten. Because I hate seeing all the seams. Yeah, well, that's good practice. So tell me, who do you hope this work speaks to? Like, who and who do you think it represents? Um, I mean, I'd love for it to speak to women and gender nonconforming people. I'd love men to watch it, too. Um, especially, uh, I guess it would be great if women of color were interested. Um, I, I feel like it has a whole group of people. And, like, there's so many different people represented, and it's not just, like, there's not just one woman of color, just one lesbian. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, I think people will see themselves in it. And, you know, I don't think we normally get to see ourselves that much mm -hmm. on camera. Um, so I think this will speak to a lot of different kinds of people. Great. So in the 15 seconds we have left, 
literally. Any advice you have for young filmmakers, women starting out in filmmaking? Just make your stuff. I think that, you, you know, it can be really bad at first, and that's fine. You'll just keep getting better. Just right. make it. Okay, great. That was super short. Appreciate that. Um, and then... When is what, what's the schedule? Can you tell us that? Do you have it? Uh, well, it's premiering tomorrow night. There's two showings tomorrow, tomorrow night. night. Being Thursday night. Thursday, uh, April nineteenth, and mm -hmm. then also again on Saturday, April twenty-first. Okay. Uh, but it's actually sold out. People can come and wait on like get on a wait list, mm -hmm. but it is sold out. Okay, so we're not going to push anybody there, but hopefully they'll check it out when yeah when it premieres when it premieres in October. Okay, awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, great to have you here. Stay tuned for our conversation with the Universal Circus Ringmaster. circus in New York, it's hard not to think of Barnum and Bailey and the spectacle of elephants marching through the Midtown Tunnel. But there's a different circus in town right now. And when I say town, I mean Brooklyn. It's called the Universe Soul Circus, and it's celebrating its 25th year. It's a black-owned and operated event that prizes audience participation and inclusivity and has acts from all over the world. Its ringmaster, Lucky Malazzi, is a one-time street performer from South Africa. And I spoke to him yesterday at this very table. Here's that conversation. So, Lucky Malazzi, yes. Universal Circus, thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me today. So, tell me about Universal, Universal Circus. It's not like Barnum and Bailey's, I'm guessing, but what's the soul part? Oh, man, the soul, first of all, like you said, the name sets us apart. You know, we are an international, global show that, uh, you know, represents the whole world. And not only that, we are known for being the most interactive circus in the world, which means when you come out to our show, you're not just going to be sitting down and watching the show. You're going to be having fun. You're going to be up on your feet, dancing, playing with the beach balls. We have the audience members come in and dancing in the center ring, the kids. You know, so we have a little bit of everything for everybody. And, you know, even our whole setting is up close and personal because you could literally just touch us, and that's what we do. We come out there and entertain you while you're in your seat. We come and dance with you out there. So... It's a family show for everybody that people really enjoy. So I was going to say, it sounds like it's a more intimate kind right. of thing. Where, right. I mean, so the audiences must be a little smaller than the usual uh, We actually, our 10 holds 2,200 people. Mm. So, you know, even on not a sold-out show, every seat is a good seat. Um, so we have, like you said, it's intimate. We're up close and personal with you. You know, you're just having fun, you know. And before you even know it, Three hours is out the window. You don't even know where it went, and you just had a good, fun time. So tell me a little bit about the history. When did it start, and, and uh, kind of what was, what was its origin story? Well, the Universal Circus started, first of all, it's based in Atlanta, you know, um, hometown. It started off in 94, 25 years ago. So we are celebrating 25 years this year. Congratulations. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. So, uh, yeah, so... Mr. Cedric Walker, he was a promoter, you know, road manager for the Commodores, uh, the Jackson Fives, those big groups. And then he went into plays, and he saw that a lot of people were bringing their kids. So he was like, you know what, I need to create something that the whole family can enjoy. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be anything like a play, but I want, you know, I want the whole family to have some fun. So he was like, how about a circus? He did a lot of studying about, you know, circuses. And that's when it was born. It started off in Atlanta, and then, you know, a couple years down, they did, you know, three cities. A couple years down, they did a little more. And now we travel 
you know, worldwide, I could say, because in 2001, we even visited South Africa, my home country. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was an experience, and now we actually have two tours touring this year. Oh, wow, that's great. Yeah. So you are the ringmaster, Correct. and our podcast audience may not appreciate that. If anyone <laughs> were looking at you, they would, of course, understand right, right away, uh, wearing a, a kind of a, a burgundy um, velvet jacket. Floral. Floral, paisley sparkles kind of pattern, and yes. Sparklies <laughs> and some octagonal or pentagonal-shaped glasses, right. sunglasses, mm -hmm. uh, looking very nice. But you've been with the circus for what you said... 18 years. 18 years. So you weren't a ringmaster when you were 11 years old. No. How did you get your start in it? Well, see, um, the owner and founder, he travels all over the world uh, looking for ta talent and performers. So he found me in South Africa, and we were performing on the street because I was a street performer. And I think that's one of the things that he appreciated about me, being able to captivate an audience, you know, just walking by and stopping them just to watch you perform. So my uncle and I were performing in the streets, and he waited, the owner waited at our, you know, usual spot for like a week before we even came in. And when he finally saw us, he was like, wow, this is amazing. So that's when he picked us up. So what and kind of performances? Like I was an acrobat, yeah, mm -hmm. acrobat and contortionist. Mm -hmm. Well, actually not a contortionist. My uncle taught me how to be a contortionist because the owner was like, I'm also looking for a contortion act. So he found um, my little sister. It was like, give me three days, I will build you a con great contortion act, and he did. Wow. And so we came over, and then every year I did something different. You know, I was a trapeze artist, trampoline. I've walked the wheel of death, you know, I, did, uh, I was the DJ. So you named it, I've done it at the Universal Circus. Wow, that's great. So another thing that sets the circus apart, as I understand, is a lot of your philanthropic work. Can Correct. you tell me a little bit about that? Well, yes, uh, we do a lot of community service because what we want to do is impact all these communities that we visit in because we play the hearts of these cities you know the the urban uh, part of these cities and when we come out there we want to make sure that everybody's coming out and enjoying the show and not only on the entertainment aspect of it what we do we do a lot of charities we do food for the soul we do our open house um, families uh, shows we do a lot of the stuff now with the open house you know, when Mr. Walker was going all over the country, he saw that there was a lot of families that didn't have any homes with children. So he decided to open up our home, which is the Universal Circus, and have them enjoy that. You know, so we do a whole, a whole show charity. You know, it's free. We give the children free toys, for you know, free for food. For homeless. For, for the homeless, homeless. correct. Wow. Yeah, we, we charter them with the buses, and mm. it's just fun, you know. Mm. And that's what we're doing. And also, we also give out the Humanitarian Award to a lot of artists that impact their communities, not only by entertaining. Like uh, last year, we, did, um, we gave the hum uh, Humanitarian Award to Chance the Rapper because he does a lot of stuff for his community. And that's what we're doing also with the Universal Soul Circus. And another one that we do is in Atlanta. It started off in 2005. It's called um, the Food for the Soul. Mm -hmm. So we get these schools, you know, to collect all these perishable foods, you know. And whoever, you know, has the most, we give out tickets to that school, like the first place, second place. And we do this every year. And every year it works. The kids come out and mm -hmm. have fun. So we do a lot of these things to the community to impact them and show them that not only do we entertain but we out here for them because at the end of the day, this is their show. 
Wow, well, that, that sounds great. Um, so you said you play in the hearts of the cities. Correct. You're playing in Brooklyn right, right now correct. until the 29th? Until the 29th, correct. Right. And then at Ebbets Field, is that where you yeah, guys Yeah, at the Floyd Bennett Field. Floyd, sorry, Floyd, Floyd, Floyd Bennett, Bennett, Bennett Field. Field. Right. Field. That doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> yeah. um, Floyd Bennett Field. Right. Um, and it, if people want to get tickets for that, they can go to your website? Yes, they could go to Ticketmaster.com, our website, or you could visit our box office uh-huh. on site, which is open every day. And, uh, yeah, UniverseSoulCircus.com, Ticketmaster, purchase your tickets online. And we do say get your tickets early because we've been selling out. We started in January, and we've been selling out every show. Mm -hmm. And we want everybody to experience it because we have a lot of Mm -hmm. newcomers to the show that haven't seen the show before, and now they make it a family tradition and even have generations to do that. Okay, awesome. Well, Lucky Malazzi, thanks so much for coming in. Good luck with the rest of the circus and your tour. Thank you. And we'll look forward to seeing you when you're back around in Brooklyn. No problem. Okay. That's the show for today. Tomorrow, as Earth Day approaches, we'll talk about climate change and how to get women more involved in the conversation and a look at Secret Brooklyn, the borough's little-known gems. Hope you can join us. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley Seaford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargy, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hagasak, Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve DeSev. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.